David Quist is a microbiologist and restaurateur who believes in the power of microbes. Listen as this American, based in Scandinavia, tells us how he makes sense of the world upside down. Thank you for joining us on the podcast today. It is a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. So I always begin the podcast with the question, what do you believe? Mm, yes, uh, it's, I do love this question because it's just so many yeah, different dimensions and different sparks fly in my head. But I've been, like many people, very engrossed in the current events. Mm. And so I would answer, you know, I believe that the adversity we're facing today is the perfect opportunity for transformation. Mm. It's the perfect, you know, we're in the midst of a global pandemic, a global climate crisis, social upheaval, the U.S. and around the globe, basically. And it, but it really provides an opportunity to re-examine and redefine how things are set up. You know, what uh, re-examine and redefine our social structures mm. in ways that help us refocus on what's really important uh, for many people, taking care of each other, the planet, and reimagining uh, what we want our our systems to be about. Is it about profit and financial rewards, or is it about prosperity, well-being for all? So I, I, I really feel, well, a lot of people feel pessimistic now. I believe right now is such an exciting time to be alive, that the mm. opportunity for transformation and for creating the future that we want to see in the face of a lot of shitty things. Can I, can I say that? On, yes, that okay? of course okay. you could say. <laughs> uh, a lot of shitty things happen. Yes. Um, that, that it's an exciting time for transformation. And so I'm, I'm, I believe that, the, that uh, we're in the midst of, of those transformations. I'm, I'm very excited about it. That's, that's a great answer. Thank you. I'm wondering if it has anything to do with, I mean, in terms of transformation, you know, you're American right? You, you, but you live in Oslo and spend a great deal of time also in, in Copenhagen. I'm curious if you're, because you, you, you sound incredibly positive and I'm wondering, does that have anything to do with where you are in the world? Wow. Um, I mean, Norway has been incredibly, well, some would say lucky, but we, I guess you could say lucky in the pandemic. We have had very few cases and, and even fewer deaths comparatively. And I think that has a lot to do with this way that the Norway is set up and, and things are set up in Scandinavia. There's a, a already built-in high level of social trust. Mm. Um, you know, things work. People are interested in, you know, have a kind of communal mindset mm. about things. And I, I really think that has helped us kind of uh, deal with the pandemic in ways that other countries probably have not been able to. Uh, I, I, yes. So I, I think that that transformation that we, that I see that probably in places because things are already pretty good here. So maybe that those kind of same dysfunctions aren't so apparent in our system, although we have them, but they've been really laid bare in other parts of the world um, that in ways that haven't, we haven't had to have the kind of response, but um, I have gone through real transformation you know, in kind of uh, this kind of more collective mindset about things, about it being work-life balance, about society being oriented to taking care of the vulnerable and the needy 
um, mm -hmm. in, in, in just the way that it operates. Mm -hmm. And so that has been uh, something that I've kind of adopted uh, over the years. I've been here for about 15 years now. And mm -hmm. really, is kind of I really feel quite Nordic in that respect. But I think that's what's really helped us in the pandemic is that we do have a lot of these things that uh, other countries are saying, we need more solidarity right. and have, right, right. social trust. It's already built into to the mentality of, our, uh, of this society mm -hmm. and has really um, been good for us. Well, Absolutely. Well, we certainly can learn a lot um, by, from the Scandinavian way of life and, and, the, and Scandinavian society for sure. Um, I'm so curious. You are a microbiologist. You are a restaurateur. Um, why microbiology? What, what spurred this interest of yours? Well, um, I mean, I've, I've always been fascinated by life underneath, you know, this kind of the unseen world, mm. right? And when, when I was a child, I, I grew up in Kansas. So this is like about as far from the ocean as you can get, right? But I was uniquely fascinated with the show that was on PBS when I was a kid, the, the undersea world of Jacques Cousteau. Mm. And I don't know if you know Jacques Cousteau is, but he was this French intrepid pioneer of the sea with this insatiable curiosity and passion and love for the underwater life and, and its conservation. And he produced these documentaries that you, where you could just feel his pattern. He would explain things about underwater life and it was bizarre and different and unseen and so forth. And I, I'd find myself as a young kid, like swimming around my living room floor, talking like Jacques Cousteau, as they got the fish, and 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 really just Great. just drinking deep on his insatiable curiosity and passion for the unseen world. Mm. And I really took that as my own odyssey. So I, I ended up studying, so I was always curious about the natural world, and I ended up studying uh, botany, plants, mm. as my undergraduate degree. But I, I quickly got turned on to how plants form symbioses with the microbial world, largely under the soil, you know, this unseen, invisible world, mm. where it really kind of, it was fascinating for me. Um, and I really saw when I'd walk through the forest, I wouldn't see so much the trees and the things that were going on, I like I saw it almost upside down. I would see all the things operating below ground that were essential to life as we know it. These mm. carbon cycles and different systems and the interactions going on of upteen billions of organisms simultaneously communicating and interaction or interacting below ground. It was happening above ground. But what mm. fascinated me was the behind the scenes kind of essential uh, nature of these organisms. And they're indeed incredible. I mean, they're both uh, fundamental to, as I said, all these processes, but also really mysterious. We still, scientists have estimated we know about, if cataloged, a fraction of a percent of all the viruses and bacteria that exist in this planet. Like there is this massive diversity we just have no knowledge of yes. here on our planet, right? Yes. They're found everywhere and they're co-existing and co-evolving with all life forms on right. the planet including ourselves. Mm. And it's this huge array of properties and functions and capacities, the microbes that really, uh, I saw that there was, that there was something there in exploring these potentialities for uh, creating a more sustainable future. So for example, in my restaurant, we look at ways that we could um, take waste products that we normally throw away 
and maybe create a, a use an enzyme from a, a microbe that would make it edible, right? Oh. So we're not wasting so much. Or that we could create new materials from fungi or bacteria to exist polluting products um, is another curiosity of mine. So the ex potential from the microbial world, uh, we've mainly explored this through fermentation, but it, it's like we're just getting the tip of the iceberg of what's, what's possible there. So it's that curiosity and creativity that I've, has really driven me of the microbial world. I love it. I love that. This, this is the narrative behind the food biology and sustainability. Yes. Yes, Fantastic. absolutely. I mean, and, and that's the, the sustainability thing comes in. I mean, a kitchen is really this place of, it's like a lab. I mean, a kitchen lab are really not that different. Right? I mean, it's this area of infinite exploration of how you create a dish or how oh. you combine different ingredients. So we do that in the laboratory as well. In a kitchen, you're kind of looking for a specific outcome, like uh, a deliciousness <laughs> primarily, or right. the way a dish looks. We try to be more open-ended and impartial in science, and it's not looking for a specific outcome when we design the experiment. But it's, it's kind of the same principles of cataloging and uh, you know, asking questions and looking for answers. But in the kitchen, you have guests that are kind of witnessing this that you don't really have in a lab that's also kind of participating in this curiosity and so forth and sometimes and really driving it because you want right. to create something different for the guests and right. for and for yourself you know to keep it interesting mm. um so that's where the innovation side comes in beautiful i love that um what what has taught you what has being a restaurateur taught you as opposed to a scientist the differences um i mean aside from you know, the, the similarities are like, like I said, the kitchen and the lab are very similar, but you know, restaurants <laughs> it, are very different beasts. I mean, I think there's a lot of people who haven't worked in the restaurant world have this kind of glamorous view mm. about what it is. But I mean, people that gravitate to the lifestyle of the kitchen, it, it's a hard life. It's full of people who have, you know, a passion and an energy for that lifestyle, but it creates a lot of wear and tear and dysfunction. You have a lot of people who have it very rough and a lot of drug abuse and people with problems and stuff. You have that in all, all like walks of life. Right. But, but, but there's something about the energy and the passion of a kitchen where every service, mm -hmm. you're like going into this intense, emotional, like high-paced journey. Everybody's functioning and working together. That's both mentally exhausting at the end of the day, but also binding. Mm. to each other in in that mentality of doing something together of creating an experience night after night for guests that is bonding that you don't really get in a lab i mean you you do your work and you have your interactions but it's not this passionate kind of interplay right. day in and day out so they, it's a, a, a restaurant and a kitchen is is quite different in that respect and it, and it requires a different way of of interacting with people motivating people and the attrition rate's very high Right. in restaurants right so people will stay for a short but they want a new experience and so they go on so then you have to retrain new people hopefully find people that align with your vision and uh you know keep the keep everything moving forward mm. and that can be quite difficult to mm. oh i'm sure I'm, I'm sure it's very it's very very challenging i mean i worked i worked in a restaurant when i you know ages ago and it was the hardest yeah. the hardest job but you definitely felt a sense of community there you know everyone that works in the restaurant is just you know, you're like one, you have to be one, you know, movement, you know, it's kind of like you're all just sort of doing the job and everyone's, it's kind of, it's a neat experience, I think. I think it's yeah, essential. I mean, it's an essential fewer, experience. 
Absolutely. Few people are in it for the money. I mean, you're in it for the passion and for the camaraderie right. and for doing something, something special. And that's why I kind of got into that game was, was uh, about the creativity, but also doing something different and offering an experience for guests um, that's quite different than what you might get in another restaurant. Right. Absolutely. Um, I'm curious, um, you know, in terms of what's happening right now um, in the pandemic, being a scientist, how are you, how are you looking at this, this, this crazy situation, this pandemic, you know, how, how is it, what's your take? What's your prediction? Oh my goodness. About, uh, you know, how societally or, or how the pandemic's going to come out the all of biology. it. I mean, I'm, I'm fascinated by, and, and this time I've had a lot more time off because the restaurant was closed for some time, right? We're, we're open again, um, but on a lower level, has kind of afforded me the opportunity to like go deep, deep into the biology of this virus and how mm -hmm. it interacts with our, our bodies and what the different initiatives and how they impact um, the development of, of the, and the epidemiology of the disease and so forth. And it's, it's incredibly fascinating. I think it's incredibly fascinating. Mm. At the same time, I think, you know, now as we're getting to know that immunity, the, the emerging picture is that our immunity is short-lived. When you get, when you developed antibodies, specific antibodies to the, to the virus, they only last for a few months at best. Mm. And so this idea that we were going to have a silver bullet, you know, everyone was saying once we have a vaccine mm. was being repeated by world leaders over and over. And that is quickly evaporating as being the silver bullet we thought it would be to get us back to normalcy. Yeah. So we're, we're faced with a situation with, with two things. I think they're important. One is a, a situation that we're going to be living with this for, for the considerable future, that there is not going to be a silver bullet. Right. in a vaccine mm. um, whenever it does appear. And so what that new normal uh, looks like is, is, is anyone's guess. But I think it also heightens an appreciation, uh, which is one of my other kind of pet things about uh, microbes, is the importance of really redefining our relationship with microbes, right? I mean, most people, when they think of microbes, they think of germs and they think of, you know, things that make us sick, right? And they don't really realize that the vast majority of microbes are beneficial to the planet and to people. Mm. And they don't really consider that while, you know, the, the whole world of the microcosm inside of us and the microbiome, while we like to think of ourselves as individuals, like an individual living creature, in reality, that's not the case. I mean, our body is full of viruses and fungi and bacteria that live on and within us. Mm. And I know that sounds gross to a lot of people, right? It's like, oh. Oh, there's all this stuff. All, but, but the truth is, is that we live and these things live within us and provide a number of, of benefits to us for digesting food, immune system support. They help synthesize vitamins and even maintain our, our mental health, we're learning, right? So the, the essentiality of these microbes um, in our system, which there's like 10 times more bacterial cells in our body than there are human cells mm. that we've co-evolved different processes with. And when you think about it, like where does the human start and the microbe ends and vice versa, right? Right. Because we've given over some of our vital human functions to these organisms. 
it, 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 it's kind of, you, you really start thinking of the notion of we rather than just I from a kind of existential point of view. Mm. But back to what, where I think it's important for COVID is that we also need to be thinking and taking care of not just, you know, saying, oh, we need to sanitize everything and we need to just, you know, use antibiotics and antivirals and therapeutics against this one pathogen, but we need to think about the homeostasis of all the resident uh, microbes that live within us because it's when they're in balance. It's when they're out of balance is when we are susceptible to pathogens. Mm. But when we focused on and appreciated the balance that we have with these persistent colonists, they're not going anywhere. They're always within us and they're going to be with us and establish a better relationship that takes care of those. I think it's going to help us uh, deal with COVID and in, in that we will have more background nonspecific uh, immunity because we're taking care of our natural microbial systems that live on and within us. Mm. So when and there's a deeper appreciation for this, I think that it's going to actually, and those that actually think about that, will have an easier time dealing once and if uh, they become susceptible and, and have a, a case of case of COVID, how, how much they're impacted. Mm. So point is, is that rather than focusing on this warlike mentality and sanitizing everything, we need to redefine and think about the importance of all the microbes that live within us in, in maintaining our health, and particularly in the face of a pandemic. Wow. That's fascinating. Fascinating. Um, what do you think the, the next wave of social responsibility will be? Uh, that's, a, that's a good question. I mean, there's a, a number of things. I think one of them is right now at this time, I think people are this pandemic has exposed the way things are set up and people are getting awareness and wanting to do the right thing and support systems well, not, that... Well, not, not everyone, by the way. Not, not everyone. Not, not everyone. Not everyone. This is, this is true. And, 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 and it's easy for us to kind of see what people are doing around us. And being in, this, in, in the restaurant sphere, there's so much solidarity going on right now. So it feels mm -hmm. very much... Like that, like everyone at times, um, but but um, I think that it has opened up people to look more at our humanity, a little bit more closely. Um, so one of the things that I think that we're seeing is that people are taking, are more in tuned to the impact of their purchasing decisions, mm -hmm. that they're taking more responsibility in understanding where the products that they come from and what they choose to invest their money in yes. uh, impacts the globe. So I like to think that that's been a good out kind of uh, outcome that's happened as a re result of what we're facing. I mean, you're even seeing this now more forcefully in the industry in this notion of uh, tailored consumerism. Mm. So now we're, we're, we're getting to the place where there's artificial intelligence that's being used to kind of not only to, to try and get certain kinds of products that they know that you purchase, but also to come up with metrics and some of this is mandated by governments and others to develop metrics that allow you to look at like ecological and CO2 footprints of products so that you can make more informed choices right. on uh, what, what, what the future you want, right? Because our purchasing power does largely determine what products are going, you know, what capitalism is going to, yeah. going to bring forth in the marketplace. So, so for better or for worse, these metrics are coming to the fore in shaping what is kind of a more um, tailored process in terms of targeting uh, the, our purchasing uh, decisions. And it's, it, I, on one hand, it has a, a, a very capitalist direct, directive. On the other hand, it is helping us make 
more um, sensitized choices of our, our purchasing. So I think there's a good thing. So I think that's where so people, it's also very convenient for people because instead of having to go and search it out, they say, oh, this metric told me that this is socially responsible, uh, m much like an organic label does or sustainability label might do, right? So it's kind of making it easier for people to make those choices for better or for worse. But um, when there's some legitimacy behind those labels, that's great. Uh, but I think that's where people are going to be putting their social responsibility on informing themselves on some level on their purchasing power. Mm, yes, and transparency. Brands having more transparency in, in how they're getting things made and where they're getting things sourced and all of it. Yes. Absolutely. And it's really emerging and working you know, in this sphere. It's really emerging that... Mm that sustainability it does it actually helps the bottom line when companies that take care of these things and are transparent and do kind of make all of that information known mm -hmm. that people gravitate towards that and actually has been better for their bottom mm. the investment has been has been and i think people i mean there are people behind these corporations and some of them have conscious consciousness that say we need to be a part we're the part of the problem we need to be a part of the solution yeah there's a lot of greenwashing out there but mm. that transparency is key to kind of um looking be able to to uh, figure out which ones are, are are really genuinely in it for the right reasons right no, that's very true so david what breaks your heart <laughs> Oh my goodness. Uh, when I, I just thinking about it, it almost breaks my heart. Um, yeah. You know, I, a couple of things on a kind of broader scale. I mean, I've had the opportunity to travel a lot for work and I did part of my PhD work in Mexico in impoverished communities um, in the state of Oaxaca. Yeah. And it's almost incredible to me that we still live in an age, despite the immense wealth of resources and ideas that we live in with increasing economic and social inequalities mm. in this planet. It seems that that with all, again, with all this wealth, that we would be able to target that as, as going in the wrong direction for, you know, the kind of plant that we want, that uh, we have these persistent problems that only become more intractable as these disparities grow. Mm -hmm. And that breaks my heart. And seeing that as, as I have um, through my work has made it, a mantra for me to, to work against that. And, and that's one thing that breaks my heart. On a more personal everyday level, I would say what breaks my heart in being a restaurateur and working in restaurants is not being able to hug people. Yeah. <laughs> Do you feel this, right? Like seeing someone yeah. that you haven't seen for a while or a guest yeah. coming in who's, you know, has been on vacation, comes back and you're just like, ah, uh, holding yourself back from wanting to give this big bear hug. Because I was used to hugging the regulars and hugging, you know, our employees on a, on a daily basis. And, 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 and the restaurant, I mean, we set the restaurant up to be this convivial shoulder to shoulder space that created people. I mean, Norwegians aren't so used to talking to strangers. And so we set up the restaurant mm. for this kind of closeness and interactivity mm. uh, to break people out of their shells and create, a, create bonds between people that didn't know each other. Well, and then that was in 2019, and now comes Corona, and yes. that's just not. And it's it's heartbreaking that all the things that I love about the restaurant have kind of overnight right. evaporated mm. to the point that we have to kind of find new ways to create that. I mean, we're we're very adaptable, and we will find new ways to do it. But that essence of that touch and that hug and and that connection, that physical Personal. connection with people, mm, yeah. is is has been heartbreaking for me, and and that's. Uh, 
that's largely, I think, been why, come, you know, returning the restaurant, and that's been the biggest challenge is how do we create a convivial atmosphere that is where you want to go and eat rather than just take, you know, the delicious food home and do it in, this, in kind of the confines of your home. Mm-hmm. How do we create that in the age that we find, in the situation that we find ourselves in? So how are you? How are you doing that? It's, it's a challenge. Um, I mean, we, we take, we've, we basically removed almost all tables from our restaurant. We only have five out of 18 tables indoors. We have a bigger outdoor space. So we've just moved it outdoors. Um, it's tough. We try to provide the information to people that we, cause we want to maintain a curiosity about the food and where it's come from, how it's made, but we're doing it more in showing them where they can get the information rather than staying at the table and talking them through the menu and right. doing these things that would be a more personal interaction that we need to limit the personal interaction that we have at this time. Uh, and we've done that mostly by bringing the service outdoors um, to reduce the, the risk of, of possible transmission, sure. but also just keeping the level of information and keeping the, the level of curiosity mm. uh, to our guests so that they can kind of also see like, oh, what are you guys doing new? And, and you know, bringing things out, maybe we're testing something and just bring it out to a regular and say, hey, try this. We're, we're going to put it on the menu. What do you think? And keep doing okay. those things to keep people connected to the place. But it's a challenge uh, mm. when you have to remove people from, you know, distance everyone else. And the most respectful thing you could do is to leave them alone, right? And not actually go talk to them unless you have to. Right, uh, right. So that's kind of how we've been adapting. That's, it's, it's very, it's really, yeah, that's so different. So the name of your restaurant in Oslo, for those who may not know is, how do you pronounce it? It's a, it's Rimnir. So Rimnir. just, the, yeah, the H is silent. So it's, it's, okay. it's not the most approachable name, but we chose it. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's an old uh, Viking word, Ooh. which uh, means something covered in soot or char from a fire. And we chose this because I, I mean, I'm a Kansas City boy, so (laughs) at heart. So grilling is kind of close to my heart, but I also appreciate the kind of visceral response that we have to cooking food as something that we've been doing in time immemorial that I think brings out this kind of gut response to us. And I find it very delicious. Um, So we grill a lot of the food, a lot of the toppings that go on on our ramen. We do a Japanese style ramen dish made from Nordic ingredients. I have to tell you, I mean, I've never been to your restaurant. I'm dying to go. (laughs) Every time I see a photo of this ramen, I just, my, I'm just, my taste buds are just screaming for it. It just looks so incredible. And you know, it really, it's a, it's a work of art. Well, thank you. I mean, ramen is fun. I mean, number one, because it's fun because it's messy. Like like, nobody looks glamorous eating ramen. So you just have to like, yeah, yeah, you have to just dive in there, but it's beautiful. It's almost yes. so, it's so beautiful you don't want to mess it up. <laughs> well, and that's part of the art also that goes within it, right? Is how you create and create the bowl. Um, but it's it's about the ingredients first and foremost. But the, it's it, ramen's great because it's like some other things like pizza. You know, it's like you just find the flavors. You can kind of do everything and yeah. anything you want. A lot of people think that it's Japanese, so it's very regimented and very traditional, all these things. Yes, but in some respects, but the tradition of ramen has always been innovation. Mm. So it's been different all over the country. So regional styles of ramen are, have sprung up over the last hundred years all over Japan. And we're simply doing the same thing. Mm. We're just taking, you know, the regional ingredients, which are really the best is what's around you mm. and doing uh, and, and, and using the great seafood and the uh, great produce that we have to create a unique 
kind of experience in this microcosm that's a delicious, messy, <laughs> beautiful bowl of ramen. Beautiful. I love it. I love it. I'll get there one day. Please um, I would love that. When you look at various art forms, I'm, I'm curious, what is, what inspires you the most? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, and I think that this is really comes from being in the restaurant more that I've really come to appreciate and understand how skill comes about, you know, that skill is, is crafted from countless hours of refining your technique. Skill comes from, people have natural skill, but skill is also built through this kind of tire, almost tiresome repetition of intimately knowing a process or an ingredient that you work with, mm. where at some point the boredom of doing that over and over kind of stops and the body and the mind kind of take over the repetition of doing that, that frees up a sense of creativity, that you bring more and more to that skill. And so I think I, this, that appreciation is also the same thing I appreciate about art, particularly those that have, that have, you know, kind of straddled this nexus between expression and refined technique. Mm. And so I think that when you can see the layers of expression that come through that rendered skill um, in certain kinds of works of art, not all works of art has that, but ones that really hone in on a skill and a mastery of that skill and different layers of expression is, is what I really get um, a lot of inspiration from. Um, however, at the same time, like I think my, my definition of art is a bit hopelessly broad because I, I, I feel like there's, there's art in everything too, whether yeah. you're mopping a floor or designing a spreadsheet, like the, how you approach that. Everyone is an artist if they choose to be in anything that they that. do. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and so to me, that's the most important and, and beautiful thing about art is that we can, we can really do it in any human practice. And I try to do that about my ramen and about my science and about a lot of things I do, which gives a, another depth of, of meaning to, uh, to what we create. Right? Absolutely. I always say your life is your, your own masterpiece. That's how you make it up is, is, is art. Absolutely. Sure. I'm, I'm curious if you could remove one thing out of our society, what would it be? Oh, fuck. Do I have to pick one? I mean, you could pick one or two. I, I mean, mean, I'm sure one of them is going to be social media, but cause you're not, on, <laughs> cause you're not even on it. So I don't think you uh, are anyway. Well, not to the extent. No, I, I do it for the restaurant, but I mean, uh, cars, styrofoam. Yeah complacency. I mean, I don't know. I could pick one subsidies on food. Mm. Uh, I, I mean, really anything that's continues to contribute to global problems rather than being a source of, of solutions, I guess I would say. And, you know, in, in all of those things, we can find, try to find and come up with creative solutions around them. And I think that's, again, what's so interesting about the problems that we face mm. uh, is they see there's a hotbed for innovation and for thinking differently and thinking creatively which is this artful expression that we're talking about and gives meaning to, uh, to, you know, facing these problems that we're in. Cause I think I, as I said, I'm incredibly optimistic, maybe, maybe naively so, but I feel like these challenges are this ability to redefine and re-explore mm. in ways that, that um, I find incredibly, incredibly both challenging, but also inspiring. Well, it's and, also uh, our responsibility, isn't it? Absolutely. It's our, it's our responsibility at this Absol point. It's at a breaking point for a reason because we have not, I mean, you have, you've been contributing in, in large ways, 
But for the most part, we have to really figure this out. And it's at a point where if we don't now, we won't have a planet. So it's, 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 it's essential. I agree. I mean, and, and it's, it's easy to like, and sometimes in my more pessimistic, it's like when we're down in the future, we're in this like crazy dystopian future. It's like, Oh, well at least, you know, at least we tried. Like we, at least we were like fighting the good fight. Like, no, that's not enough just to think that you're there. Like there is no, uh, there is nothing but to overcome these challenges. But again, because of these upheavals, the adversity that we're facing is this opportunity for transformation. I think that it's putting us in the best position. And I wasn't this optimistic six months ago. Not nearly. Wow. So what changed? What changed? I think it's, it's, it's the, it's all the upheaval that we're facing. Okay. You know, and, and this and this opportunity to say, how can we do this better? So when so when COVID started and everything started, you were you were sort of like, this is okay, life. This is we're just heading we're just heading for the worst possible scenario. And now because of all this, which is a terrible situation, it actually really now you feel like we have a, a shot. I, I yeah, and I think that a lot of like you know pre-COVID, you know, when you're talking about the climate crisis. You know, world leaders are saying, oh, this is a big problem, but we don't have the money and, you know, we can't make this happen, yada, yada. And then Corona happened and we saw in the matter of days the mobilization and the political will to mobilize trillions of dollars in a singular fight for a crisis. And we can do the same with the climate crisis. We've proven that it's possible to do this. And we can do it again with these other challenges that we're facing. And that's what's given me a, a lot of hope. In Norway that we've had a, things have been, you know, there's been a, oh, we, have, we have an oil fund, right? That uh, a lot of people think, you know, Norwegians we have, are super wealthy. And actually all of our oil fund, or at least 90, about 94% of it, is invested into our pension fund. It doesn't go to the government. 6% or around 4, 4.5% goes to the government. But um, 96% of it goes to our pension fund. And it's, wow. you know, a trillion-ish dollar pension fund for 5 million inhabitants. Amazing. And, but we, we've been tucking that away for a rainy day. Mm. And that rainy day has come. And so when the health minister stood up and is announcing these massive economic packages, he stood up and he said, we have this, you know, oil fund that we've been setting aside, and now we're going to use it. Right. And now we're mobilizing the money to actually be able to overcome this in a good way. And the United States is doing its, its part. It's doing it a very different way. Mm. Not only all countries have the capacity to do it uh, on the scale that some countries are. Mm. So the challenges for perhaps greater. But, but you see the political will that could be shaped there. You see the social will that can be shaped there when we say this is important enough. And we can do that with the sustainability crisis and the climate crisis that we're facing as well. And I'm very hopeful for that. That's, that's great. I'm, I'm, I feel more hopeful after speaking with you. Um, <laughs> yeah, seriously. No, but, um, uh, but I'm, I'm wondering because, you know, you've spent this incredible time you know, being, you know, from, you said Kansas City, right? Kansas City yeah. or outside of, okay. Um, and, you know, here you are in, in Scandinavia. Um, very different lifestyle, very different life. What, what would you, what would be the advice for your younger self? I'm just curious. Oh, um, wow. Um, well, I, I was not very good at being kind to myself, Mm. uh, when I was younger, I would say being kinder to myself. Um, 
I, 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 I liked a good challenge and I often took the hard path. Um, it may be some kind of masochistic <laughs> tendency to want to travel the hard road to mm -hmm. earn kind of the victories in a more deeper sense. Um, so I was, but I wasn't very kind when I failed to myself. And I think that I, instead of embracing my failures and using them as an opportunity for learning and growing from them, I tended to just kind of move on and be like, okay, let's get away from that. And, and, and I think I didn't spend enough time just sitting with those failures, right? It's important to sit with your failures and understand, you know, what happened and to yeah, take that as an opportunity for growth and, and understand the flaws that help create them and consciously put in a plan to, to work on them, to kind of overcome them. And I think that I didn't take care of myself enough to I'll, I'll be kind enough to, to allow myself to embrace failures, learn and grow. And so I think I plodded on through mm. and I did learn eventually on some of those things, but I think I plodded on a little longer than I had to more haphazardly and with less, less efficacy in learning from my past mistakes. Um, but that comes from, I think, being being honest and kind to yourself. And uh, that's been been part of a, a life lesson in my journey. Yes, yes, we are. I, I suffer the same. I'm incredibly hard on myself. Um, as a matter of fact, you know, where I was going with that question was, I, I wish mm. I had moved to uh, Norway when I was young. <laughs> oh, God, it sounds amazing. I want to move to Norway. No, but... Um, uh, yeah, I, I, uh, I agree. I think it, you're, when you make life harder than it is, I mean, life is already difficult. It can be difficult. We're faced with so many challenges. Why are we making it harder for ourselves? Mm. I don't know. But yeah. I, I, I think there's something to me alluring. I don't know if other people should, again, it might be masochistic, but I feel like myself, I can only speak for myself, but I, I like to kind of feel human beings. We're at our most creative and innovative and most on when we're facing like when we're facing res like you know, resource challenges, so if we're really hungry, right? That's not when we're going like, oh, I think I'll just sit on the couch and wait for food to appear, right? That's when we go, okay, how am I going to go and make this happen, right? Figure it out. And yeah, and that's when we're going to be at our best, really. And so I think I use that as fuel in some way mm. to push myself. Um, and it's, and again, when I had successes, it was, it was great. And I felt the sense of achievement from that. But when it did go so well, I didn't take it. I took it as, as a more of, I took that as a failure of my own, you know, my own self, but didn't examine it further. So I, I don't know. I think that there are kind of, maybe it's a mentality that people who tend to be ambitious and want to kind of, I was always one that wanted to figure out the hard questions and do things that people never done before mm -hmm. and there's probably a reason no one had done that before because it was quite hard um, but there was something that was very alluring about me and I continue to kind of push those boundaries in, in the work that I do but it does create a lot of challenges for yourself so it's 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 the advice would be be kinder to yourself to your younger self because yes yeah. yes in the face of all those challenges that you put before yourself wow that's that's great. Thank you. This was so great. Thank you so much for joining me today. Really it's been a pleasure exciting. talking with you. Yeah. Oh, thank you, David. All right. Take care.